0: Imagine being in a Japanese prison camp during World War II. Your sleeping conditions are miserable. Going to the bathroom is an excruciating and embarrassing experience. Your food portions are typically a small bag of uncooked rice. You've endured this for months. Perhaps you've endured this for years. You're regularly taken out into public view to be beaten again. You have broken bones, broken teeth. Your clothes are loose and flabby because you have lost all possible weight. You've watched people die by going through the same experience they're putting you through again and again. Imagine being in that scenario. Just let those smells and those hunger pangs and the loneliness and the shame and the anger wash over you. And then imagine that there's somebody there in the prison camp with you, enduring the same tribulations that you are, you are enduring, and he keeps saying, Every little thing's going to be all right. And he's just kind of like Bob Marley, trying to keep everybody all happy. Everything's going to be fine, guys. We'll get out someday. What are you guys so worried about? You'd want to punch the guy in the face. And he probably already had gotten punched in the face a lot of times. But his optimism was driving you nuts. Because he keeps telling you, Surely, victory is just around the corner. We will be fine. By now, you've come to realize that this guy is probably just delusional. This is his coping mechanism for dealing with the violent, disgusting torture that you've been going through for months or years. But what if that guy's right? What if that delusional guy in your prison cell or in your prison camp is actually right? What if it all will turn out better than you could have ever imagined? What if the suffering will end and you actually will be vindicated? What will you think then? That's what our text is doing today. It's pulling you out of the prison camp and the nasty garbage that you're dealing with in your life right now, and the shame that you're enduring as a prisoner, so to speak, as a disciple of Jesus. And it's making you realize every little thing is going to be all right. Our text today is Revelation chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. And I'll just tell you right now, I'm not going to read the whole text out loud, at any point, even right now. We'll read part of it now, and we'll read other parts later, but we're not going to read the whole thing. I encourage you to do that. If you're not a Christian, uh, I want to submit to you that your very presence here today, this is my perspective, I am happy to back this up in a personal conversation, if you are here, your presence is an act of God's mercy towards you that you are here to hear what I'm about to share with you, that I've already started to share with you. This is Your presence is an act of God's mercy, allowing you to, in the language of our text, allowing you to hear the sound of the trumpets. So if you are new to the Bible, you can just take one of the Bibles that's underneath one of the chairs near you and turn to the very back cover and start flipping forward a couple pages until you find the big number 8, and that's where we're going to be today in Revelation 8. 9, 10, and 11. And if you weren't here last week, let me give a quick summary of why we have divided the text where we have. Obviously, we could have divided this just on chapter 8 today and chapter 9 the next week. But the reason we're dividing it where we did is because in chapter 8-5, we have a phrase that then is repeated multiple other times in this book. Chapter 8, verse 5 says, "...then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar." and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then if you look at the last verse of our passage today, chapter 11, verse 19, it sounds almost identical. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. It's not exactly the same sentence. What it is is it's a little bit worse It's like the cycle that John just went through, he just turned the dial up. He turned the heat up. And it sounds even worse than it did the last time he said this. And it happens again that way in chapter 16. So I think what John is doing is going through the course of human history in a cycle and then intensifying it. Going through it again. One of the ways that we'll see this is last week he talked about, say, a fourth of the rivers turning to blood. Well, today he says a third of the rivers are turned to blood, or a third of the sky is darkened. Well then, the next time he comes through the cycle in chapter 16, he says, the whole sky was darkened, so just a little bit, and a little more, and now the whole thing. And so he keeps kind of ratcheting up the intensity every time he goes through these visions of judgment. So many of us were were taught, were raised, perhaps even in churches very similar like this one, or perhaps even in this church, to read this book from chapter 4 to chapter 22 in one straight line, like these things happen one after another, and I understand why we read the Bible that way, why we read this book, I should say, in particular that way. I just want to submit to you that I don't think it's the best way to read it uh, for one of the reasons being that I just showed you that there's this repeated phrase seemingly indicating the end of time over and over and over again. And it would be strange for John to say, well, there's basically the end of time, but then we kind of start back over at the beginning and kind of go through it again. So I think what John's doing is taking human history from Jesus' resurrection and ascension to Jesus' return and looking at it through different lenses, maybe with different colored lenses each time, and helping us see what's going, behind, going on behind the scenes. So pulling back and saying, you know how that you thought there was just a lot of human suffering? Let me explain why there's human suffering. You know how it feels like it's really hard to be a Christian? Let me tell you why it's really hard to be a faithful Christian. And so even before I read this passage, I'm going to tell you what I think this the big idea is, often what I label this as, the big idea of this passage. I think it's this, that God's just judgment on his enemies calls you to faithful endurance. The phrase faithful endurance shows up like seven times, I think, in Revelation. So that's where I'm getting that idea that this whole book is about Christians. You're in a really hard spot. You're suffering. You're sinning. You're being persecuted, and on and on. So, so endure. Like keep going. Keep holding on. Don't let go. Be like that guy in the prison camp who keeps chirping at you. It's going to be all right. Every little thing's going to be all right. And John's trying to tell you theologically, not just optimistically, but theologically. It is going to be okay, so hold on. Don't give up yet. There's still reason to hold on. God's just judgment on His enemies calls you to patient endurance. And so what I'm going to read here in just a moment is chapter 8, verse 6, the beginning of our text today, through the end of chapter 9. These are the first six trumpets. So we saw last week the seven seals, kind of like wax seals on a scroll that were keeping it closed, Now we're hearing seven trumpets. What's a trumpet do? If you were at the Battle of Jericho, for instance, what were those trumpet sounds meant to tell you? Well, if you're a good guy, in that case it was the Israelites, they were the good guys in that situation, the trumpets meant what? Victory's coming. We're going to win. God's going to knock this whole wall down, and we're going to win. But if you're a bad guy, what what does the trumpet sound mean? It means judgment's coming. It means you're going to lose, like, real fast. So hear the sound of the trumpets. If you're listening carefully today, you can hear them. I want you to hear them. As we read Revelation 8, 6 through the end of chapter 9, where we're going to see God's just judgment on his enemies calls you, compels you to patiently endure. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets... "'prepared to blow them. "'The first angel blew his trumpet, "'and there followed hail and fire "'mixed with blood, "'and these were thrown upon the earth. "'And a third of the earth was burned up, "'and a third of the trees were burned up, "'and all green grass was burned up. "'The second angel blew his trumpet, "'and something like a great mountain "'burning with fire was thrown into the sea, "'and a third of the sea became blood. "'A third of the living creatures in the sea died, "'and a third of the ships were destroyed.' The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle, and their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like woman's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle, they have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Both of those names are simply mean destruction or destroyer. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them... They wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols, of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murderers, of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. There are three certainties in this passage that call you to patient endurance. Three certainties that call you to patient endurance. The first is the certainty of judgment. Judgment is certain for the wicked. That's one of the elements of this passage. The second is that suffering is certain for Christians. Suffering is certain for Christians. And third, victory is certain for God and for his people. So judgment is certain. Suffering is certain, but victory is also certain. Do you notice multiple times in this passage the phrase, those who dwell on the earth? I believe this shows up three different times in this passage. That's the way that John has been referring to unbelievers throughout this passage. Uh, So you'll notice, for instance, in uh, chapter uh, eight, ver- oh, sorry, chapter nine, verse four. He's referring to they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. It's not like, all no, they look. They were all environmentally concerned. No, it's just these demons. That's what they're representing. These nasty things are intended to hurt people, but a certain kind of people—those who don't have the seal of God on their forehead. Well, if you're just looking around this room, I don't see any seals on foreheads, so what is this talking about? It's clearly an invisible seal. But who sees the seal? Who knows who has what seal on their foreheads? God does. And throughout the book of Revelation, you see two kinds of seals on people's foreheads. You have those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. That's all of those who love God and have put their Christ in the reigning King Jesus. You also find people who have a seal of the the beast on their foreheads. We'll see that in later chapters coming up soon. Who are they? Those are unbelievers. So if you don't have the seal of God on your forehead, you are going to suffer immensely and be judged by God immensely because you are not allied with Jesus. Which means you are allied against Him. Did you notice there at the end of chapter 9, these people who, you know, they endure all this heartache and suffering? The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they still did not repent of their idolatry? And I just want to step back and even from that phrase, the fact that some people are so blind to what afflictions they are enduring because of their rebellion against God, they don't even realize it's because they are allied against God. And I recently had a conversation with a lady, just a brief one, and I asked her, well, because she had said she had gone to a a, uh, Catholic school growing up, so I said, so, do you go to a Catholic church or any other kind of church? And she said, no, actually, I'm not a religious person. I want to tell you, friends, it's a myth to think that you can be religiously neutral. Like there's some middle ground, you know, over here you have the Christians, and over here you have the Muslims, and over here, you just kind of like start dividing up humanity. Well, there's Christians and non Christians. Well, there are people who are allied with Jesus, and there are people who are allied against Jesus, and there is no in between. So someone who says, I'm religiously neutral or I'm not a religious person is just saying, I'm against Jesus, but I'm not going to talk about it. And so, these earth dwellers that are mentioned like in chapter 8, verse 13, where he says, woe to those who dwell on the earth. That's just a way of saying, this is their home. As opposed to what, we would ask? Well, as opposed to what the rest of the book of Revelation is telling us. Heaven is our home for those of us who put our trust in Christ. As Paul tells us, our citizenship is not here on earth. It's in heaven, which is why we make a really big deal here at Brainerd about Jesus and not a really big deal here at Brainerd about America, as much as we love America. And we, you know, I take my kids to Fourth of July parades and things like that. But if I'm going to pick one or the other, I'm going to be faithful to Jesus and pledge my allegiance to Him. Because one is going to last forever and the other is going to fade away like every other nation in human history, has or will fade away. Has, has faded or will fade away. So these earth dwellers is another way of describing the, the, the ones who receive this judgment that's certain for the wicked is, an, is a way of describing worldly people. People who put their trust in this world, who make everything about their lives be about how can I be happy now? How can I get the most now? How can I have the biggest house now? The coolest car now? And on and on. These earth dwellers, these worldly people, are people that John tells us in 1 John 2 says not to align with. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world because they will pass away. David Wells, a theologian in Massachusetts, who's now retired, but he's written some wonderful books that are continuing to help Christians today. He describes worldliness as being whatever makes holiness seem strange and make wickedness seem normal. Worldliness is whatever makes holiness seem strange. You are such a weirdo for getting up to go to church on Sundays. Don't you realize how nice it is outside? You could be golfing. You could be having a barbecue this afternoon. You could do lots of things and you're at church. You're weird. Worldliness says holiness is weird and wickedness is normal. It's normal to tell children you can cut off whatever body part you want and be whoever you want. That's normal to earth dwellers. And judgment is certain for that kind of rebellion. Did you notice, though, that <clears throat> this judgment is, is coming and it's all in God's hands? Perhaps you notice the phrase, phrases that are stated in the passive voice. Theologians would call these divine passives. It just means that God is the one acting, it just doesn't say that. So, for instance, these beasts or these, essentially, these demons who were being prepared, who had been prepared, prepared by whom? It's not Satan. God is the one who prepares all these things. Prepared for a certain time. Or the one who held the key in His hand. Who's that? It's not Satan. God has the key to the bottomless pit. And He gives it to Satan. To the angel of the bottomless pit He describes in chapter 9 there. Chapter 9, verse 1, I saw a star fallen from heaven. I think that's referring to Satan. He was given the key... He was given. There's the passive. Who gave it? God gave the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So all of this is in God's hands. And the same goes for the suffering that we experience. It's in God's hands. We talked about this in Sunday school last Sunday, last Sunday morning. It's not like we're living in a world where God and Satan are in this cosmic conflict. And on a good day for us, God wins. And on the bad days where suffering happens, where 9-11 happens, where things like this happen, well, clearly Satan won that day. He got the upper hand. Nothing we can do about it. Hope that tomorrow is better. No. Christians. God rules. The whole summary of the book of Revelation, if you want to boil it down to two words, it would be God rules wins. God wins. It's not up for grabs. We know who's sitting on the throne. And we worship Him. So keep your eyes on Him. I meant to say earlier that one of the reasons I chose such a huge chunk, which has both driven me crazy, actually I wouldn't say both, it's just driven me crazy, there's no part of me that has really enjoyed studying four chapters this week and trying to make it coherently, um, you know, hopefully make sense for you. Uh, the reason I chose this bigger chunk, though, back in January, if you want to think of it that way, when I initially put, started reading through Revelation over and over again and trying to put this together, the reason I made it a big chunk was so that we would not get lost in the weeds? Like, what are these wings on the locusts? Or why do they have, like, woman's hair and lion's teeth and all these things? Like, so weird. But if you just take the composite and you just kind of try and zoom out, okay? Just, like, turn the knob so that you're zooming further away from it. And you say, okay, are these things good or bad? These locusts that have nasty wings and faces and crowns, whatever else. Does it sound like something you want to meet in a dark alley or not? And I'd say, yeah, it's really bad. Like, these sound really disgusting. These sound like some kind of tortured child drew these things up trying to think of the nastiest creature he could design. And we get these locusts. And let's just make it worse. Let's make them like horses too. And they have like serpents as tails. And This all sounds awful. That's the point. And the reason I zoomed out on four chapters was so that you would get the point that you don't want to go to the bottomless pit no matter where it is. You don't want to interact with these locusts or horses no matter what they look like in real life. I think it just refers to demonic activity that happens around us and we don't even realize it. And here in America it's, you know, we're often numb to it. If somebody acts super weird we have different terms we'll you know throw at them, but you're talking about missionaries who live in like really dark places? They're encountering this kind of garbage all the time. And it is not pleasant. And what this, chap- this passage, chapters 8 and 9 especially, are telling you is you don't want anything to do with this. This is disgusting. But somebody wins over the evil. Victory is certain for God and his people. Uh, perhaps you'll notice as I'm trying to help you make sense of these four chapters. I'm just kind of throwing the three certainties at you over and over again. The judgment is certain, the victory is cert- uh, the suffering is certain, and the victory is certain, and we're not kind of marching through it passage by passage or section by section. But I am trying to assure you that the enemies of God will be defeated. And again, while we don't sit here and like celebrate, oh yeah, down with the bad guys, we do take comfort just like The guys in the Japanese prison camp would take comfort if they knew that their adversaries, their enemies, were going to be defeated. So our weapons of warfare against these demonic locusts and horses that are described here, or against the wickedness that's just thrown at us by the earth dwellers around us, those who are worldly people who are absolutely throwing their lot in with this life and the lies that this world tells you, we don't celebrate their demise, but we do celebrate that we are aligned with Christ, that God always wins in the end. And so we don't have to be nervous of what the final outcome will be. And so our warfare as Christians, as the church militant in this age before the church triumphant in the next age, our weapons are prayer and preaching the Word and telling people, Judgment Day is coming. Open your eyes. This is not a game to play. Maybe you've heard recently the this is not a game commercials. You only get one life, so be careful when you're driving through construction zones. That's the point of those commercials. This life's not a game, friends. So tell your loved ones and tell your friends this is not a game. You don't want to be aligned with those who are aligned against Christ. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, there's a story of the seed of the serpent in conflict with the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent loses to the seed of the woman, which is referring to Jesus. This is going back to Genesis 3. And we are aligned with those who are continuing to stand for truth, to stand against the lies, and the kind of pernicious atmosphere that we live in. We live in a world where the atmosphere, the air we breathe, is toxic. One one article I read this week used this phrase, our culture has the aroma of satanic enchantments. Our culture has the aroma of satanic enchantments. So how do you break the enchantment that you're breathing in, and that everybody else around you is breathing in. I don't know how many of you guys have read the Chronicles of Narnia, and in, I think, possibly the fifth book, if I remember right, The Silver Chair. There's a character in that book called Puddleglum, which is a great name, but Puddleglum and all his other friends are being enchanted by a wicked witch. And there's this kind of aroma in the air, and that's what this line was referring to. And Puddleglum stomped out the fire that was causing the aroma to fill the room, And as soon as the fire went out, everybody kind of came to their senses and were like, oh my goodness, we were being totally deluded. Can you see that happening in our culture right now? Where politicians and educators and corporations are all piling on. You are all welcome here unless you disagree with us. And then you're not welcome here. And you're not welcome here if you stand against the enchantments that our world is causing us to be imbibed with, I think is the word I I would use there. But this is simply a reminder, Christians, that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And while this sounds terrible that God is opposing, God is going to judge, God is going to bring great judgment. I mean, you heard about the, the water being destroyed, about darkness, and on and on. And then this eagle comes and says, basically, uh, just so you know, it's going to get a lot worse. Like, It's going to continue to be really bad. This judgment that you're going to experience from God is going to be horrifying. But if we were going to summarize this passage this opposition of people against God, what I want to say is God opposes the proud. But He gives grace to the humble and His arms are open wide to you. And so if you are in opposition to God today, we would beg you, we do beg you, to humble yourself and throw yourself at the feet of Jesus' cross and beg Him for forgiveness for buying the lies and propagating the lies that our world is throwing at us. It is only somewhat ironic that an earthquake, a devastating earthquake, happened the week that we're talking in this passage about a devastating earthquake at the end of chapter 11, which again, I haven't read now, but I pointed out that the end of 11 and middle of 8 both have this earthquake. And I read a quote just this morning from a survivor. The survivor said, We felt a huge shake like it was doomsday, 10 seconds, and everything was gone. And I would submit to you that that guy, I don't have his name written down, but that survivor received God's mercy to survive that doomsday experience so that he could repent. And every time there's a near car crash that you're involved in, or a tornado goes near your property, or whatever other close encounter you have, that is God's mercy to you to say, my arms are open wide to you, full of mercy. Yes, judgment is coming on all those who ally themselves against Jesus, the King seated on His throne. But you don't have to stay allied there. And what's remarkable is, maybe one of the reasons the the passage uses this, metaphorical language of the seals on the foreheads. We don't know who has what seal, right? There are people who are members of Baptist churches in America who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. I pray that none of us are among them. And there are people who we would be shocked. We will be shocked on the last day. Oh, you were one of us. We didn't know it because, and you could fill in the blanks of, we didn't really see the fruit of the Spirit in your life and things like that. But God is the only one who knows who has which seal on their forehead. And so we keep preaching the gospel. I hope you've noticed that there is not a week that goes by when whoever is preaching from this pulpit doesn't tell you, you need to repent and believe the gospel. Because even if you have done that initially, you have been converted... The life, as Martin Luther says, the life of a Christian is one of repentance. You keep repenting every single day because you keep sinning every single day. And there's opposition toward God in this passage. There are people who want nothing to do with God, and I'll read another section in just a moment here. But I just want to tell you, God's opposition toward you is way stronger then you're opposition toward him and if you're going to stiff arm him God resists the proud if you want to resist him you can resist him but you will face judgment judgment is certain but let me show you where in particular I'm showing you the passage or I'm showing you this idea that suffering is certain for Christians let's basically skip chapter 10 and you can read it, and if you'd like to ask questions about it, you can do that. But let me read the beginning of chapter 11. I'll read 11, 1 through 14 here. Revelation 11, 1 through 14. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months." And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They, the two witnesses, have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified." For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth, the worldly people who think that wickedness is normal, will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange gifts, presents, because these two prophets, the two witnesses, had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. In short, I believe this passage, this section, chapter 11, is describing God's people who are faithful to tell the truth, preach the Gospel, we would say, witness for Christ, share the truth with the watching world. And this passage is telling you We as the church, as the two witnesses, people who continue to preach the truth over and over again, are going to suffer. It's going to be really bad. There's going to be obvious disenchantment on the part of the world toward you because you keep telling people that they're not right with God because they keep living in rebellion because they have not submitted to Jesus, the King who reigns over all things. And so God's people will be Persecuted. God's people will be thrown in jail. God's people will have their heads cut off. God's people will be left out of the public square. You will not be elected to office. You will not be allowed to be part of this organization or to attend that school and on and on because you refuse to bow to the world's idols and to evil and the evil one himself. But there will come a day when people will be terrified because they see the Christians that they have persecuted and mocked and harangued, and we will rise, and we will be resurrected, and we will reign with Christ forever and ever. And people will be terrified. Their enemies watch them in verse 12. Thankfully, verse 13 says that some of those people repent and they give glory to the God of heaven. That seems like they they are converted. They say, okay, I think this is real now. I think I've been duped all along, but I'm pretty sure there actually is a God. Forget this non-religious situation. There is a God. His name is Jesus. He's the king. I'm going to bow to him. It sounds like there are people who will do that who are continuing to do that. Praise God that he's continuing to do that and that will continue to happen to the end. We are living, friends, in a world where it is hard to follow Jesus, where suffering is certain for us as Christians. This passage is described in multiple different ways. The two lampstands, the two olive trees, the two prophets, the two witnesses. It's using Old Testament language there. It's particularly Zechariah. The lampstands and the olive trees are just symbolizing the people of God. That's why I'm concluding what I'm concluding. That in Zechariah, the two olive trees and the two lampstands mean the people of God. We already saw in Revelation, the lampstands mean the people of God. So it sounds like the two witnesses, the two prophets, all of them describing the same people is just a way of saying those Christians who live between Christ's ascension and Christ's resurrection will be suffering. And guess what part of history we're living in? The time between Christ's ascension and Christ's resurrection. So this is talking about us as the church. Preach the Word. Keep preaching the Word. Keep telling your lost friends and family that Jesus is the only Savior. Friends, I want to urge us to be loyal to him and to resist the pull of the world. There's a song I want to tell you about that maybe you've heard of a guy named Dave Radford. He, he and his wife make, up, make some Christian songs. Called, uh, the, they're called the Grey Havens. You can look them up on Apple Music. One of those songs is called Sirens. And I think it's particularly about the pull of addictive sin. Frankly, I think it's about pornography, about how alluring it is to take something that's good and should be wanted and make it highest of all. That's a line from the song. But what he does in this song, what David Radford does in this song, it says, I heard the sound of the sirens and I knew I should get out of the water. Okay, we're talking about like Greek mythology here. And I knew I should get out my sharpest sword and suit of armor so I could be ready to fight. But instead I just kept listening. Because I just wanted one more taste, and they were telling me that there was something good that I could have. Does this sound like your the, the way that you're pulled towards sin, whatever it is, whatever addictive sin, whatever sin habit you are wrestling with today? Does this sound like it kind of matches your experience? And he says, and so I followed them, and I went after them. And what the song, the chorus calls you to do is to hold on. You've tasted grace that's more than this. You've tasted joys that's more than this. You don't have to follow the sirens. You should plug your ears to the sound of the sirens. If you hear the sirens calling you, you should get out. And what I'm telling you is that this passage tells you to resist the pull of the world. The pull of the sirens. Don't let them tell you we're going to give you a joy and it's going to be like nothing you've ever experienced. It's going to be totally worth it because what they're doing, like in the language of the prophet uh, of the Proverbs, is they're poisoning you. You don't realize that the allure <clears throat> of wickedness will kill you. One time my son Andrew was walking up to a fence and there were pit bulls on the other side of this chain link fence. And he was walking up to them like this. He was one at the time. And he has had his hands extended and he's walking up And I just thought, what are you doing? They want to eat you alive. And if they get hold of your fingers, again, they're going to pull your arm all the way in. They're going to eat you all the way to the end. And that's how we are with the world. Hold on. You've tasted joy. That's more than this. So resist the pull of the world. Repent of your idolatry. And at the end of chapter 11, I want to tell you, friends, to sing songs of praise. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, in verse seventeen, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged. That's Psalm two. He's John's just dropping Old Testament lines to do every line of this song. But your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints. That's us. The time for rewarding those who followed Jesus. And those who fear Your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth, that day's coming. And so then there's the earthquake. Then there's the end of the world. We know how this thing ends. We know what history will wind up as. And all of history is arcing toward that day when God's wrath comes. Finally and completely. And the dead will be judged, and he will reward his servants, the prophets and saints. And so, keep your eyes open to what's happening in the world. Perhaps some of you are familiar with Louis Zamperini. I'll close with this. Louis was in a Japanese prison camp. And I'll just read a section of essentially the last day of Japanese prison camp. It was the growl of an aircraft engine, huge, low and close. The swimmers, prisoners of war who were in the river, looked up and at first saw nothing but the overcast sky. Then there it was, bursting from the clouds, a torpedo bomber. As the men, the prisoners, watched, the bomber dove, leveled off and skimmed over the water, its engines screaming. The POWs looked up at it. The bomber was headed straight toward them. In the instant before the plane shot overhead, the men in the water could just make out the cockpit and inside the pilot was standing. Then the bomber was right over them. On each side of the fuselage and on the underside of each wing there was a broad white star in a blue circle. The plane was not Japanese, it was American. The plane's code red light was blinking rapidly. A radio man in the water near Louis read the signals and suddenly cried out, "'Oh, the war is over!' In seconds, masses of naked men were stampeding out of the river and up the hill. As the plane turned loops above, the pilot waving the POWs swarmed into the compound out of their minds with relief and rapture. Their fear of the guards of the massacre they had so long awaited was gone, dispersed by the roar and muscle of the bomber. The prisoners jumped up and down, shouted and sobbed. Some scrambled onto the camp roofs, waving their arms and singing out their joy to the pilot above. Others piled against the camp fence and sent it crashing over. Someone found matches, and soon the entire length of fence was burning. The Japanese shrank back and withdrew. In the midst of the running, celebrating men, Louis stood on wavering legs, emaciated, sick, and dripping wet. In his tired mind, two words were repeating themselves. Over and over. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. That's the sound of the trumpets. Victory is coming. The trumpets are sounding today. Can you hear them? Father, we look forward to that last great day of victory when we will sing your praise, when we will say, yes, the nations raged against you. But God wins, and Lord, we are so broken by the sin in our own hearts, by the sin in our world, by our faithlessness, by the way that we are so quickly Allured by the world and by the siren's song. So Lord, we beg for your mercy. We beg for more conversions. That sinners near and far would see the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.